The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from Acts 26, 24 through 32. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and I speak to him boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Um, Let me pray for us really quick as we get started. Uh, Father in heaven, we we come to you now, and um, we would ask that you would meet us again this uh, Sabbath day, your day. You would meet us because uh, inevitably, like good sheep, we are scattered all over. Um, And we are walking in these doors, uh, sitting in these pews with... um, struggling relationships, struggling uh, health, uh, and many of us, maybe even our faith is barely intact. Some of us may not even know why we're in this room right now, but Lord, you have us here. And so we pray uh, above all else that we would hear from you and that you, Jesus, would draw near and be a friend to us, be gentle with us. You would open our ears and open our eyes and soften our hearts to believe just a bit more. Um, in the good news of the gospel, that you were crucified and have been resurrected again for our sins, and that in you we have life and life abundantly. We pray these things in your name. Amen. <clears throat> well, uh, good, good morning once again, and uh, welcome to Christ Pez Music Row. If you don't know who I am, that's okay. Uh, my name is Chase Dawes. I'm the RUF campus minister at Vanderbilt, right across the street there, and uh, my family and I uh, actually worship here, so perhaps I look familiar, or my family looks familiar, but you haven't met us. We would love to meet you, so please introduce yourselves to us uh, after the service. Um, it would be, be great to make some new friends. Um, we are uh, still in our series on Acts, and um, as we jump back into that, I kind of wanted to bring up something that was quite uh, traumatic might be an overstatement, but certainly animated how I carried myself when I was in middle school. Um, uh, I remember, especially in middle school, that like one of the worst things that you could be accused of was being a poser. Do you guys remember that language at all? Like you just don't want to be a poser. Um, if you don't know what that means, let me explain. Uh, if somebody... Uh, got something that was cool first, 
uh, whether it was a pair of jeans or some new shoes or, you know, uh, uh, like a hip hairdo. Like back in, when I was in middle school, it was the frosted tips like Freddie Prince Jr. If you guys remember who he was, I don't, based on your reaction, it's the same thing in the first service. Anyways, you can look him up. Frosted tips. Uh, I never had those. Bleach didn't take in red hair for some reason. Um, but uh, whatever it was, uh, you could not copy people if they quote-unquote found it first or else you'd be a poser. Um, you had to at least let it ride for, you know, a couple weeks or so, and then you could slowly incorporate whatever it was into your personal brand and lifestyle, but you'd have to play it cool um, like it was just a total coincidence. <clears throat> and the idea behind that was that in order to find your truest self, in order to find fullness and happiness, you needed to be utterly unique. No one else could be like you, which, you know, is a myth, but that's, that's what we all bought into, right? You're utterly unique, authentic, and anything less than that, you're just a, you're a copycat. You're a poser. Um, and if you're like me and you need to heal from some of that middle school trauma this morning, I've got some good news for you. The first good news is that um, you absolutely should be a copycat and you should be a poser. In fact, I would encourage you to look around this room right now and, and find somebody who has like a pair of jeans on that you really like and just say like, I'm going to buy a pair of those jeans and I'm going to wear them. Or somebody who has hair that you really admire and you say, I'm going to comb my hair the way that you do. Or perhaps they're warm and you're like, I just want to be nice like these people or smart like this woman. Whatever it may be, find somebody, imitate them, copycat, right? And I say this for one simple reason. All right, I say this for one simple reason. We were made to imitate people. We were made and created to imitate people. And the myth of authenticity and individuality is that the source of meaning and identity in your life can be found and formed mostly, uh, if not exclusively, from within. Just be found and formed by me and my whims and my hankerings. And what I, what I think, or at least I hope this is the case, is that uh, collectively as a society, we're beginning to feel just how utterly exhausting this empty project is. Because we were never meant to be self-made. We were meant to imitate people. Well, what we see in our passage this morning is that Paul is actually inviting us to imitate him. Paul is inviting us to be like him. And so what I'm going to do this morning to help us break down this passage is I'm just going to walk us through a handful of questions. I've got three questions for us this morning. So we're just going to start with the first one, right? <clears throat> the first question that many of us may not have the guts to ask, but I think we need to ask uh, if we're going to be honest with the Bible and, and sometimes how foreign it can feel, uh, the first question that we need to ask is, why on earth would I or anybody else in this room want to be like Paul? Why on earth would I want to be like Paul? Let me give you just a bit of brief context here. Paul is yet again pleading his case, as he's done many times throughout the book of Acts, uh, pleading his case in front of a bunch of people 
who either have it out for him or they have the power to make his life totally awful or they have the power to actually end his life. And specifically here, Paul has made it all the way to King Agrippa II, who it was the uh, son of King Agrippa I, who we read about in Acts 12. And Festus is here, who followed Felix, who is just another puppet governor of the Romans. And Bernice is there, who is the sister of Agrippa. And then there's this smattering of other Roman elites. And Paul is pleading his case before these people. And at the end of Paul's testimony, after he shared, even before the verses that we read, he shares, he goes into detail about his entire story and testimony. And in verse 29 here, near the end of what we read, Paul looks at everybody in the room and he says, hey, I want you to be like me. I want you to be like me. King Agrippa asks him in, in, in somewhat of a condescending manner, after Paul shares all this stuff, he says, you think that you can make me a Christian right now, just in this brief moment. You can persuade me to be a Christian. And listen to what Paul says. Paul says, whether it's, it's short or long, no matter the amount of time, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. I want you to be like me. Now, let me return to my initial question, right? Why on earth would any of us want to be like Paul? Um, if you have no idea about Paul's uh, track record, I'm happy to remind you that's totally okay. A lot of us are learning the Bible for the very first time. It's a beautiful thing. Some of us maybe have heard about Paul for a long time. We just don't know all the details of his life. So let me just give you the resume that he gives us in 2 Corinthians 11. And I want you to think about just how fun it would be to be a guy like Paul. Okay, this is what we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul was whipped with 39 lashes on five different occasions. He was beaten with rods on three separate occasions. He was pummeled with stones on one occasion. He was shipwrecked three times. He was left floating out at sea for 24 hours for one day and one night. He was constantly traveling, constantly on the go, like walking everywhere. He had near-death experiences in rivers. He was threatened by robbers. He was threatened by Gentiles. He was threatened by his own people. He faced danger in the city. He faced danger in the wilderness. He faced danger at sea. He faced danger and betrayal from false friends and brothers. He, <clears throat> he faced endless toil and hardship. He had insomnia and endless sleeplessness, starvation and dehydration. He was exposed in freezing temperatures. He had church-induced anxiety. I could probably relate to him on that one. That might be the only one. And then the very last thing, there's probably other things on this list, but the last thing that he tells us here, just to boot, is that he was bitten by a viper. Um, that's kind of funny to me that that kind of pops up there at the end because it, it reminds me, this book doesn't relate really at all. I just, it came to mind when I was writing this sermon. You guys may remember that, that old classic like children's book, Runaway Bunny, where the little bunny explores, uh, little kid bunny explores all the various ways they can run away from the mom. And the mom's just like, hey, if you go there, I'm, I'm coming with you. 
Like, I'm going to be a farmer or I'm going to be a bird or all the various ways that the kid can get away. But at the very end of the book, uh, the little bunny just says, well, I guess I'm just going to chill with you here um, because there's nowhere else I can go. And the mom just looks at the little bunny and goes, here, have a carrot. And that that always makes me laugh when I read that. And I kind of sense a little bit of that here going on with Paul, but in a much, much more morbid way. Like, all this stuff has happened to Paul, and then God, at the end of all that, is like, hey, here, have a viper. Um, Get bit by a snake, right? Uh, But seriously, why on earth would any of us want to be like that? That sounds miserable. There is nothing that I just read about Paul that I'd be like, yeah, I'll have some of that. It would be like one of your kids, if you have children coming up to you, and we all have these aspirations, these dreams for our children that oftentimes become somewhat problematic. But we have dreams and aspirations for our children, and it would be like one of them coming up to you with such excitement uh, because they have a dream of what they want to be, and they say, hey, Mom, hey, Dad, when I grow up, I want to be like Gollum from Lord of the Rings. His life looks pretty enjoyable. I think I'll have some of that. Like, all of us would be like, dog, no. Like, you don't want any of that. That is a terrible idea. And that's what it feels like to read that list and then think that I'm supposed to aspire to that. Why would I want to be like that? Why would I want to experience that? Why would I want to be able to recount that story of like, hey, you know, you're grabbing drinks with a friend. You're like, let me tell you about the past couple years of my life. <clears throat> I was bitten by a rattlesnake before I got here. Like, none of us want that. And yet, after experiencing all of that, Paul is still saying, hey, I want you to be like me. Now, why is he doing that? Paul is not doing that because he's just trying to trauma bond with us because misery loves company. That's not why Paul's doing it. Paul wants us to be like him because Paul actually has something that we all want. And Paul knows it. Paul actually has something that we all want. Well, what is it that Paul has that you think that we might all want? I think there's three things in this passage that we see here that if we're honest with ourselves, we long to have these traits in our lives. We long to be rooted in this way. The first thing that we see that Paul has is courage. Courage. And look, I'm not talking about like machismo, like this dude can brawl with the best of them. That's not what I'm talking about. There's a particular kind of courage that Paul has, and it's courage to be honest about his story. It's courage to be honest about who he is. You know, in the verses prior to the passage that we just read, Um, It's still the same kind of episode, and Paul is going into detail about everything that he did prior to becoming a Christian, and then what he's done since becoming a Christian. And he is just airing his laundry in front of all these people. He's just telling it in front of all these people. And I think many of us love the idea of vulnerability. We love the idea of like living a life of such honesty where we're not hiding anymore, but the stakes seem way too high for us to actually be vulnerable. There's this part in each of us that desperately wants to be known fully, but then there's also this part in each of us, this fear that once we're found out, we fear that we're going to be abandoned because of what people see. I think this is why we spend so much time on our own 
personal PR strategies. You know, if you think about it, when you look at social media, no one ever posts something that doesn't make them look good. If you're a parent, for example, no one ever really posts about real life parenting. Right? Am I right? Everybody with me on that one? If you have kids, yeah. Like, I, I don't, at least. I don't. You don't really post about, like, what real-life parenting is like. A few weeks ago, I um, uh, was super excited about this. Uh, it was on a Friday night, about 6 p.m., and I got a text message from a friend. He reached out to me. And he said, hey, I have three tickets to see Jason Isbell at the Ryman, and we can't go. You can have them. And I was very, very excited to go. I was like, absolutely, yes, I'll take them. Um, the show is going to start in about an hour. But I also thought to myself, man, you know what? I'm going to be, I'm going to be that cool dad, be that hip dad, and I'm going to take my five and my seven-year-old boys. Uh, we have a two-year-old as well named Griffey. Didn't bring him, so it wasn't that cool. But I took my five-year-old and my seven-year-old. I was like, I'm, I'm going to take them to this concert so they can say for the rest of their lives, the, my first concert was seeing Jason Isbell at the Ryman. And let me tell you, when I got there, I was taking all kinds of pictures. You know, I had good angles and good lighting. Me and the boys looked awesome. And I'm sending that picture to my wife, Holly. I'm sending it to my friends. I'm sending it to everybody because I want everybody to know, like, man, this is how you dad, okay? This is how you dad right here. What I didn't send anybody is about 30 minutes into that show, my boys start falling asleep. And then as the show goes on and I see them kind of dwindling, one of them at the very end is literally inconsolable. He is weeping and he can't stand and he's collapsing on the ground and he's melting down and he can't walk. And so I have to pick him up and I have to hold him. And we stayed till the very end, right? We stayed to the very end and I'm holding him and he is like coughing in my face because he's probably got some illness, but I'm just like, no, this is what cool dads do. We stay here, right? We stay to the very end. We walk out, we walk through blocks of, of downtown Nashville to get to our parking garage and we walk up the stairs of the parking garage we get to our car and then we're stuck in an hour of traffic an hour of traffic we live like 12 minutes from here too so it took a long time to get home we didn't get home until 1 a.m now i don't know what you do on your weekends and your nightlife but most of you probably don't walk around at 1 a.m with five-year-olds in downtown nashville i wouldn't advise it we don't get home until 1 a.m and I get them in bed and like, you know, finally everybody's settled. And as soon as I put them in bed, one of them throws up all over their bed. All over their bed. Uh, and he's in this room right now. And I love you. I'm not picking on you. Um, you can always throw up around me. Uh, but that's real parenting, right? And I didn't take a single picture of that and put it on Instagram. Why don't any of us document when we lose it on our kids? Why don't we document it when we lose it on our spouses or our friends or our classmates or our roommates or our parents or whoever it may be? And the reason why I would suggest is that we have this inescapable sense that if we're examined closely, that we'll be rejected. We have this deep sense that we've got to hide our true self or at least control what people know about us or else we'll be abandoned. But gosh, it feels so good when someone is finally vulnerable and opens up. It is so invitational. It is so freeing to be around those kind of people. And that is what Paul is doing here. 
Paul has zero fear of abandonment. He has something that gives him the courage not only to talk about the fact that he's a follower of Jesus now, he's not just managing his PR strategy, he has the courage to detail how horrible he was to Christians prior to his conversion. He imprisoned them. He chastised them. He punished them. He even cast his vote to put some of them to death. And then later in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy, Paul goes on to say, and if you don't know this, Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament. Like, this dude is a professional Christian, okay? And that professional Christian is saying in 1 Timothy, I am the chief of sinners. I dare you to find somebody who is more messed up than I am. And I don't know about you, but that is a courage that I could use. And I imagine that is a courage that we could all use, is it not? A courage to stop pretending. A courage to be honest with who we are and what we've been and what we might do. That is a courage that we need. And that's what Paul has. The second thing that Paul has is Paul has a confidence. He has a confidence that is foreign to many of us. Paul has a confidence to trust God even in the harshest of circumstances. Now, how can Paul do that? How do you think Paul can muster up this confidence? I want you to listen to what Paul says. After after Paul gives his testimony of how the resurrected Jesus has changed his life, Festus, who's there, Festus looks at him and he says, dude, you are out of your mind. Paul's talking about some guy like who rose from the dead and has changed his life. And Festus is like, you need to get out of the books. You are stuck in this ivory tower and you are going insane. You are a maniac. And Paul responds to him by saying, actually, no, excellent Festus. He's very respectful. He says, no, not only am I not out of my mind, but I am speaking true and rational words. And he's saying that he's not just appealing to some sort of warm, fuzzy feeling that he has about God on the inside. As if like, well, you know, uh, yeah, it might be weird, but trust me, you know, in my heart of hearts, like, you know, God's real to me. He's not saying that. It's also not some sort of empty bravado, some sort of self-confidence that he's projecting uh, into this, this crowd and this audience. What Paul does right here. Paul points to facts. He points to real, historical, verifiable facts. And he even appeals to the highest uh, point of authority in this room, to the king himself. And he says, you know these things. You know these things because they didn't happen in a corner. They didn't happen in the dark. It's not some sort of secret. It's not Gnostic wisdom that Paul is espousing. He is confidently pointing to a historical fact that thousands of people witnessed, namely that Jesus was crucified on a cross. And three days later, he rose again from the grave. And because of that, because of that historical reality, Paul has confidence in any and every circumstance that he faces. 
There is a wonderful uh, little book. It's actually a, a printed lecture by a scholar named Larry Hurtado um, called uh, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? And uh, he makes the argument that being a Christian during the first three centuries meant risking, if not totally losing, among other things, your social status, your family ties, your friendships, your financial stability, uh, personal safety, career opportunities. Like the list goes on and on and on and on. And so he's asking the question, why on earth would anybody do this? And what Paul is trying to model and communicate to us right here is the only rational answer is because it actually happened. It makes zero sense to be a Christian unless it actually happened. And as one, as a pastor, right, as one who struggles with doubt quite frequently, that is a confidence that I long to have. I want to have that kind of confidence so that I can walk into any space, any situation, that I can wrestle and struggle with my own sin even, with such a confidence where I'm unmoved. Paul has that. He has courage. He has confidence. And the third thing that Paul has that we want is compassion. Paul has compassion. And specifically here, Paul has compassion on his enemies. Paul has been wrongfully imprisoned and mistreated for years now. He has been beaten. He has been stoned. He has been whipped. He's been endangered. On and on and on and on. He has every reason to have some real enemies here and to never really want to talk to them again. And despite all of that um, and all of the things that he has endured at the hands of his enemies, Paul still has compassion on them. He's still able to love them. That is why Paul is saying to us and to them, that is why he's saying, I want you to be like me. I want you to be like me because Paul has something that he knows that they not only want, he knows that they need. And he knows that we want it too and that we need it too. We live in an age where tolerance uh, in many ways is espoused as a virtue. And uh, in some sense it is, but for a Christian, I want you to hear me on this, but for a Christian, tolerance is not a virtue. God never calls you to tolerate somebody. God never calls you to like somebody. God doesn't even call you to love somebody. God calls you to love everybody, even your enemies. God calls you, Christian, to love even your enemies. And that is a compassion that Paul has that is so foreign to this world, but that is something that this world desperately needs. A courage, a confidence, and a compassion. What does Paul have 
that enables him to have this kind of courage. A courage that dares to be vulnerable and honest and humble about his story. What does Paul have that enables such confidence in God amidst any circumstance that he finds himself in? What does Paul have that gives him and creates in him this heart of compassion that's not just for, quote unquote, his people, but for even those who want him dead? What is it that Paul has? And if Paul wants us to be like him, how do we get that? How do we get that in our lives? Well, where do you think Paul gets it? You know, Paul was a, a really successful person, actually. He was, he was very educated. He was respected by his peers and he was admired. There were people that wanted to be like Paul. And, uh, but, but Paul didn't learn how to do this from his studies. Paul didn't learn how to be this way from his education. Paul was an incredible, incredibly well-traveled guy. He, he um, was cultured by the standards of the day. He had kind of been everywhere, but he didn't pick up these virtues, so to speak, from some sort of cross-cultural exposure. Uh, Paul was an avid writer, and Paul journaled. Incredibly reflective, but this wasn't the, the product of some deep self-reflection that Paul was doing as he just meditated on like what he wanted to cultivate in his inner life. And what Paul is telling us, what Jesus is telling us, is if you really want this, if you really want your life to change, you have to meet somebody worth imitating. And that is what happened to Paul. That's how Paul got it. It's not enough to just get advice. It's not enough to just get schemes for discovering your best self or strategies on how to be a better person. You have to meet a better person. You've got to meet someone with a courage to be honest about the world and about the state of our lives. And you've got to meet someone with a confidence that God will do what he says he'll do. And you've got to meet someone with a compassion so big that he'll overcome any obstacles to love his enemies. And that is who Paul met. And Paul met that person on the road to Damascus. And Paul is telling us here that you can meet that person even now. And that person is Jesus. Jesus is the courageous one. Jesus is the courageous one. Jesus is the courageous one who is not afraid of your story. He is not afraid of your story. He is not afraid of your worst moments. And he is not hoodwinked by your best moments. He is the courageous one who rewrites a new story for you and for me. Jesus is the confident one. 
Jesus is the confident one that despite all of our doubts and all of our questions and all of our uncertainties and all of our fickleness, Jesus is the one confident in the promises of God and in the historical reality of God and his work in the world. And he's committed to applying those promises to our hearts. He is confident in his work in your life. And friends, Jesus is the compassionate one. Jesus is the one who loved his enemies. Jesus is the one who loved his enemies. And he loved his enemies not just by encouraging them to be better versions of themselves. But Jesus loved his enemies by dying for us even while we were the worst versions of ourselves. That is who you must meet. That is who you must meet if you want to be somebody like Paul, if you want to have a courage and a confidence and a compassion in your life. You have to meet that person. You have to meet Jesus Because when you meet a person like that, you can't help but to imitate him. You can't help but to want to be like him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, um, would you help us want to be like you? Would you work on our wills so that even in our hearts, we would will to be more like you. And would you work on our actions such that even in the ways that we take steps in this world, it would actually be you in us by your spirit through grace alone animating our bodies to be more and more made into your image and into the beautiful image bearers that you created us to be. Lord Jesus, we trust that you will do this. We pray this in your name. Amen.